0: podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. On June 21st and 22nd of this year, the Academy hosted an event co-presented by New York University School of Medicine with support from Johnson & Johnson called The Need to Accelerate Therapeutic Development, Must Randomized Control Trials Give Way?, And it was a symposium that got deep into one of the most controversial topics in medicine, if not all of science. What's the best way to test new medications before they're available for sale? For years now, the most popular and well-regarded way to make sure a new drug was both safe and effective has been to run something called a Randomized Control Trial, or RCT. A protocol by which a group of people, called a cohort, who are all suffering from a particular disease are identified, and then divided into two smaller groups. One of which, called the experimental or treatment group, receives the treatment, and the other, called a control group, which does not. By tracking how well each of these two groups respond, you can track both the safety of a new drug, did the people in the treatment group show side effects, and also its effectiveness. Did the people in the treatment group get better than the control? Here's Dr. Art Kaplan, founding director of the NYU Langone Medical Center's Division of Medical Ethics. Randomization often uses a placebo or a well-understood control arm, and that's considered the most powerful experimental design in clinical trials. Differences in outcomes can be attributed causally to the intervention, And for uh, statistics geeks, of which I'm not one, that's internal validity. Being able to tell whether something really is happening or caused by having a controlled trial. This sounds very straightforward. But as we'll hear, how to run a trial like this, and even if we should be running them at all, is a complex and difficult question with many angles to consider. Now, as you may have heard on a previous episode of the podcast... There was another symposium last year on a different but closely related issue, pre-approval access, which is the question of whether experimental drugs and treatments should be made available to people with fatal diseases before they have been thoroughly tested for more general use. As we heard in that episode, there are extremely passionate, well-meaning people on every side of that question. And the conversations at that event were among the most heated I've ever heard at a scientific conference. It was a productive meeting, though, where people who don't usually get to be in the same room were able to express themselves and share ideas. And at this event, some of the same experts were invited back, along with a whole new group of physicians, researchers, representatives from the pharmaceutical industry, patients' rights advocates, and many others, to ask What if the problem isn't the system for pre-approval, but rather the approval process itself? Randomized control trials have been so ingrained in the scientific community that it's almost a cliché to call them the gold standard for biomedical research. But should this be the case? Are they really the best and only way to test new medicines and treatments? RCTs have backed a lot of what we say we have to have in order to approve a drug. A lot of what we say must be done in order to approve a vaccine. But there may be situations in which we don't have to rely completely on that gold standard in order to have confidence that something we want to see happen is going to happen. Randomized control trials are so popular that it's often assumed that they've been the gold standard since time immemorial. But surprisingly, they've really only been the go-to approval mechanism for about 50 years. Something like randomized control trials had been tried much earlier than that, of course. To cite a famous example, a Scottish ship surgeon named James Lind used an experiment that looked very much like an RCT all the way back in 1747 to prove that citrus fruit cures scurvy. But the RCTs that we know today really coalesced in the early 1960s partially as a response to the catastrophe of the use of the drug thalidomide by pregnant women. Thalidomide, which we now know is an extremely powerful and extremely dangerous drug, has a sedative effect, and so it was prescribed in the late 1950s to women as a treatment for morning sickness. Thousands of those women later gave birth to babies with severe birth defects, ranging from extra toes to deformed faces to missing arms to brain damage. The scandal of thalidomide caused the U.S. Congress to adopt something called the Kefauver-Harris Amendment in 1962, which compelled pharmaceutical companies to provide proof that any new drugs were both effective and safe before they would be approved by the FDA. Here's Dr. Susan Letterer, Chair of Medical History and Bioethics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
1: I mean, that was a very dramatic outcome, and Congress was impelled to act when um, members of Congress learned that thalidomide had been dispensed by physicians to patients as part of an aftermarket um, evaluation without patient knowledge and with the potentially devastating effects
2: wrought by that drug on pregnant women in particular.
0: But how do you do that? How do you prove that a particular medicine is safe and effective? Almost everything done by doctors at that time, and honestly kind of a surprising amount of what they still do, hasn't ever been exactly proved to be effective in an organized way. Instead, these treatments were passed down from generation to generation of physicians based on what they witnessed in their own clinical practice. A particular treatment seemed to work on a particular disease, and so the doctor would try it again and tell other doctors about it, or maybe write a paper about it in a medical journal. Every now and then, a blockbuster theory of disease, like the discovery of germs in the 1860s, would shake everything up and cause a massive reorganization of clinical practice. But still, the use of a particular medication was almost always based on anecdotal evidence. It seems to work when I give it to my patients. In a surprising amount of cases, even today, the details of a biochemical mechanism of a particular drug, which is to say exactly why it works, are not entirely known. This makes basic questions of clinical application, like who exactly should get a drug, how much they should take, and for how long, come down to not much more than educated guesses. Here's Dr. Robert Califf, former commissioner of the FDA, who is now a professor at Duke University and also a scientific advisor to Verily, the company formerly known as Google Life Sciences.
3: Uh, many of the recommendations and practice guidelines are not based on high-quality evidence. Aspirin, on the market for over 100 years. It took us to 1950 to figure out it prevented heart attacks to the 1950s. And today, we still don't know the right dose. Kind of surprising to a lot of people. Um, A lot of people espouse this dose or that dose, but it turned out that three years ago, we saw that when you looked at real-world practice, about half of Americans were getting uh, full-strength aspirin and half were getting low-dose aspirin. Whichever one is better, if it's only 10% better, that would be a difference of about 20,000 deaths per year in the United States alone. And if you took this globally, it would probably be close to 100,000. That's the current state um, in which we're currently practicing. And little wonder, since um, we don't have good evidence on most things that we do, it's not a surprise that you can go to two different doctors and get two, two very different recommendations for the same problem.
0: Now, there are several big problems here. First, as was shown by thalidomide, a drug might be effective at doing what you want it to do, but also have terrible side effects that you didn't anticipate. Second, like with aspirin, we may have something both effective and safe, but not really know how to use it properly. And third, it's awfully easy when you're only dealing with clinical evidence to get false positives for something to seem like it's working when it really isn't. One of the reasons for this is the famous placebo effect, that patients often feel better, and sometimes even genuinely get better, when they're given something that actually has no effect on them at all. Here's Dr. Christopher Robertson, Associate Dean for Research and Innovation at the University of Arizona. Uh, That can have huge effects, uh, especially on self-reported
4: outcomes. Uh, but also on behavioral outcomes, like ability to walk a certain distance. Uh, and there's some evidence it actually has an effect on biological outcomes, things like uh,
5: tumor survival. And again, we don't know how. We don't know why that happens. Um, but uh, there does seem
6: to be a mind-body connection.
0: And even beyond that, it's human nature to be hopeful. People will often want to continue with a treatment, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that it's having no effect on them whatsoever. Sometimes, even in the face of evidence that it's doing them harm. Here's Dr. Vinay Prasad, Associate Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University, and Holly Fernandez-Lynch, Presidential Assistant Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the Pearlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania.
2: Uh, We have the human capacity for hope and optimism is endless, that's one of the greatest things about us, but it makes us incredibly susceptible to inferior levels of evidence. We want to believe. We want what's best for our loved ones. We would do anything for truly transformative drugs. Once a product is available in the marketplace,
7: people are used to having it there. They think it's working for them, and you know, sometimes data be damned, right? Fine, you're telling me across the board it doesn't work, but for me it works, so don't pull it off the market. I want to retain access to it.
0: And these false positive effects aren't only relegated to patients. Doctors and researchers, too, want so badly to help their patients or to make a new discovery, that they can often see effects that just aren't there. Here's Dr. Ellis Unger, director of one of the offices of drug evaluation at the FDA, followed by Dr. Califf and Dr. Robertson again.
8: When you have patients who are, have no options and they are desperate and they believe in a drug, and I understand this, I have children and I care only about the patients, but you want that drug to work. You have a belief that the drug might help, it could help, I have to have that drug, because everybody is rooting for the drug. The doctors, the patients, the company, everyone is rooting for the drug.
3: It is very hard for people who put their lives into a therapy or who really want to believe in it um, to say this is actually not working. It is just hard to do. It's all built into our uh, psychology. Um, what looks so obvious often turns out to be completely incorrect.
6: Uh, and this is true not just in biomedical sciences, but astronomers and physicists and, and, and others are, are recognizing the same problem of spurious findings due to an investigator wanting it to be true.
0: Here's Dr. Andrea Troxell, Director of the Division of Biostatistics at NYU.
7: There are countless examples in both you know distant and much more recent uh, history of incorrect conclusions being drawn from observational studies. Uh, with all the goodwill in the world and, and with very careful uh, work, but because of the inherent biases in the selection and the uh, way in which the data were accessed, you know, essentially opposite results to what then later was learned uh, in the course of a trial.
0: All of these problems are addressed directly by the use of randomized control trials. By careful use of a control group, You can much more often isolate that the effect you're seeing is because of the treatment you're testing and not because of something else that you didn't know to look for. And in order to combat bias, your groups are randomized, meaning divided up by something akin to pulling their names out of a hat. And often they're also blinded, meaning that no one, not the patients, not the doctors, not the researchers, knows which of the two groups receives the treatment and which doesn't until after all the data is collected. If done right, this allows the treatment to be studied entirely on its effectiveness without any background noise. To many, it is absolutely critical that we keep testing things this way because they see it as the only way to get a clear answer about the actual effectiveness of a new treatment. Here's Dr. Prasad again.
2: The single greatest medical innovation of the 20th century was not statins, it was the randomized control trial. It is the only reliable way to tease apart bias from a real effect.
0: And the history of medicine is chock full of examples, not only of drugs that were found to be safe and effective because of randomized control trials, but also ones that were originally thought to be effective due to what seemed to be overwhelming clinical evidence, but later proved by randomized trials to be completely ineffective or even harmful. Here's Dr. Unger, Dr. Prasad, and Dr. Califf.
8: One of my favorite examples is, um, is called transmyocardial laser revascularization, which is done in the <laughs> 90s. They took patients with, with, t- with terrible angina and no options for surgery or, or angioplasty, and they actually opened their chests and took a laser and drilled holes in their heart. It was gee whiz and the patients got remarkably better. This was all based on, on uncontrolled data. When there was finally a controlled study, it showed no effect whatsoever. The greatest example in this field is the use
2: of autologous stem cell transplantation and high-dose chemotherapy in breast cancer that was administered to 40,000 women in this country before six, at least six randomized controlled trials showed that there was no benefit on overall survival and if you brought up people and you put them up on stage 25 years ago you would get the best experts from the best centers saying that I've seen this work it's transformational it's cured women it's a game changer it's a home run it's a miracle so but they were all wrong.
3: I'll just point to another experience for those interested in renal disease, high dose erythropoietin. The guidelines said do it, nephrologists obeyed the rules, they gave a bunch of it, and finally the clinical trials were done and it was killing people.
0: Even in the face of all this history of important discoveries though, to a large and growing group of people in and around the medical community, randomized control trials are more of a problem than a solution. They're inefficient, they say, expensive, overpraised, and overused. And the system we've built to conduct them is actually standing in the way of both effective research and effective clinical practice. Here's Dr. Califf.
3: I, mean, I think the clinical trials enterprise has gone awry. It's become uh, unnecessarily expensive, cumbersome, arcane. And it's causing, I think, a search for alternatives, partly out of desperation, because the way it's being done now isn't answering the questions that people are most uh, concerned about.
0: And that's what this conference was all about. Is this system of randomized control trials, which has done so much to advance our knowledge of medicine over the past 50 years, the right system for the next 50 and beyond? Or do we need something new? The problems with randomized control trials, as they stand now, begin with the fact that they are very slow. Because they are intrinsically methodical, they generally take years to complete. Here's Clifton Leaf, editor-in-chief of Fortune magazine. He's reported extensively on the development of new cancer drugs.
4: If you look at what the average time it is for a just the clinical testing phase of, of a new drug, it's about six years. So that's from the first testing in humans to the, to the MDA. Uh, for cancer drugs, it's about eight years.
0: One of the many problems with this is that the pace of scientific discovery has sped up to an enormous extent. So in the course of those six or eight years, many even newer discoveries will have been made. It's become a serious problem that at the beginning of a trial process, the thing you're testing was state-of-the-art. But by the time you're through, it's already obsolete.
4: The science is moving so fast that that question becomes irrelevant at that point because the, the, the drugs that you're testing have moved on. I mean, if you're looking, for example, in the immuno-oncology, which is a very, very fast-moving area, I mean, you're talking about science that's changing by the day. Uh, And so we're designing and enrolling and accruing patients for trials that really are irrelevant at that point.
0: Here's Rebecca Susan Dresser, a cancer survivor who is a professor of law specializing in bioethics at Washington University in St. Louis, talking about one of the reasons she declined to participate in a trial when she was being treated.
9: This trial I was invited to be in started Uh, Several years before I was diagnosed, it was scheduled to go on several years later. Meanwhile, this new chemotherapy drug had been approved for my kind of cancer and it wasn't in the trial at all because the trial had started, you know, before that, well, that drug was still in trials. When you're you're in that situation, uh, I mean, it's not that you don't want to help people, but if you have an option that looks like it might be better for you, I think most people are going to go for that.
0: And this opens up a whole other set of reasons why the randomized control trial system has come to be questioned. It's often really difficult to get patients to want to participate in these trials. And without patients, you can't have a trial. Here's Mr. Leaf.
4: In cancer clinical trials, we know the numbers. It's fewer than 5%, as maybe as few as 2 or 3% of adult cancer patients going into enrolling in clinical trials. Why is that? Because the process takes forever and gives you very little outcome that, that's worthwhile. Here's
0: Dr. Jane Perlmutter, a cognitive psychologist formerly of Bell Labs, who was also a cancer survivor and a very active patient advocate, followed by Dr. Unger and then Jane Reese Colburn, another cancer survivor turned patient advocate who currently works for the consulting firm Mark Kruger & Associates.
9: The way we've designed trials are quite in, inconvenient. Maybe it requires, uh, you know, a long geography. You, you have to travel too far. Maybe it has too many clinic visits. Um, and increasingly, there's financial toxicity associated with clinical trials. It's a, a sort of a new buzzword. But if you read an informed consent, you'll see that a patient, you know, could definitely, in many ways, have to pay more by being in the trial than not which shouldn't be. And um, in my opinion, we don't treat patients who are really volunteering and giving up themselves with adequate respect and appreciation.
8: Nobody wants to drive 50 miles, search for a parking place, get EKGs, blood work, x-rays, spend a whole day of their life getting poked and prodded and asking questions and dealing with, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. We
10: ended up helping Genentech Um, with the Herceptin trial, and they were almost a year behind. And so we sat down and looked at it. I remember saying, really, four bone marrow aspirates? Have you ever had one of those? Do you know what those are like? Mm -hmm. Um, And so there were just things in there that um, we helped them realize where I'm thinking, no wonder nobody's signing up for this thing. It's horrible.
0: Additionally, even patients who are willing to go through the hassle and difficulty of participating are often excluded because eligibility requirements for RCTs are often frustratingly narrow. Here's Dr. Perlmutter.
9: The eligibility requirements for randomized trials are very different than the way these drugs are used. And um, that can be a real problem. Um, But we kind of ignore it because if we minimize the variability, we're more likely to be able to um, prove in a trial, which is what drug companies want to and should be trying to do.
0: Now, this point, who exactly gets to participate in a trial, and who can't, and why, actually gets to the most fundamental nature of how RCTs work, and why many people think that they need to either be radically rethought or chucked out altogether. A drug trial is an experiment, and like all experiments, the answer you get at the end is much clearer if you start the process with a more specific question. For example, does this drug help people with cancer is a question that's way too broad to test effectively. To begin with, cancer is more than one disease. It's hundreds of different diseases that each respond very differently to different treatments. Likewise, people is too broad a group. Men respond differently than women, adults differently than children, and so forth. And what do you mean by help? Help how, exactly? And so, the kinds of questions that get asked in these trials are actually something like this. Will patients with very advanced stage 4 non-small cell lung cancer, but no brain metastases, who have already received another therapy, are otherwise healthy and capable of going to their office job, have no autoimmune disorders and no chronic infections, who take this treatment show more than a 30% tumor reduction as measured by targeted CT scans. Now, this is a made-up study, but we built it from real examples of actual trial criteria. And in this made up study, if your lung cancer had spread to your brain, which is very common in lung cancer, or you are so ill you cannot go to work, or if you have a condition like rheumatoid arthritis, or even if you are a stage three non-small cell lung cancer patient, you will not be able to enroll. And so it will be many years before you would be able to receive that treatment if you even survive to see it approved. And no matter the results of that study, it will not tell us if that drug would have helped a stage four non-small cell lung cancer patient who has never received another therapy. And forget small cell lung cancer, because that behaves as an entirely different disease. Each target, each stage, and so forth requires a separate trial, each of which might take eight years and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to conduct. This is all particularly problematic if the study fails, because that makes it much less likely that the drug will be tested again in different groups. And so we'll likely never know if it would have been a blockbuster if it had been tested on a different cohort. And that's just the beginning of this particular rabbit hole of difficulty. The target of our fake study, 30% 30% reduction of a particular kind of tumor in a particular body part in a particular population is what's known as an endpoint. In this case, it's a clinical endpoint, meaning a direct measurable benefit to the patient. Often, a clinical endpoint is something as simple as living longer or not having the disease anymore. But that's not the only or even the most popular kind of endpoint very few treatments are actually cures. Particularly with complex debilitating diseases, the alleged benefits of a particular treatment are much smaller and harder to measure. And so researchers are often forced to rely on surrogate endpoints, measurements that are assumed to track alongside the state of your condition. A very famous one of these is measuring blood cholesterol as a sign of risk for heart disease. Very often, people with high cholesterol develop heart problems, but not always. Some people have high cholesterol and live long, otherwise healthy lives, and some people with normal cholesterol develop heart disease anyway. So if you're testing a new drug to prevent heart disease, and you're testing it by whether it lowers cholesterol levels in someone's blood, are you actually measuring whether it prevents heart disease, or just whether it lowers cholesterol? It's a tricky question. And all of this can get frustrating to patients for many reasons. Firstly, because they can feel like the researchers aren't measuring the things that would actually make a real difference in their lives. Perhaps rejecting a drug because it doesn't move a particular chemical marker the right number of clicks down a scale, even if it might have had real benefit to the patients in some other way. Here's Dr. Janet Woodcock, Director of the Center for Drug Evaluation Research at the FDA.
1: All too often we talk to about what doctors think is important to measure, but really we're supposed to help people feel better or function better or live longer. And these things have to do with the patients, not what the uh, clinical world thinks the disease is.
0: And here's Dr. Edward Kay, a neurologist who was, at the time, the CEO of a pharmaceutical company called Sarepta, talking about their experience in testing a drug aimed at treating Duchenne muscular dystrophy a rare, debilitating, and ultimately fatal condition affecting young boys.
5: I, I think w- what was interesting for us is, of course, we initially had, had chosen a, an endpoint. It was a six-minute walk test that had been used in a number of, of conditions. Um, but the patients and in the, in the families came up to us, uh, and I think the quote was, hey, dummy, you're measuring the wrong thing. Um, and uh, it was true. And they said, well, w- what are you seeing? And so what we heard from the families was that you're not capturing the fact that our boys. Within eight weeks, are, uh, are are actually able to they stop snoring at night. Well, what does that mean? Okay, everyone says, well, snoring is just annoying. No, it's not. It's really an indication of sleep apnea. And these boys were waking up not only themselves having interrupted sleep, uh, but also having you know problems with breathing at night and, and potentially some hypoxia. So that was a really important thing for the families. They said they're able to put their shirts on where they wouldn't where they couldn't do it before. They're able to help themselves. Train transfer, you know, to a wheelchair, you know, uh, or to the toilet, and they don't need their mother to help them go to the bathroom. That's a really big deal. So what we did is we put together a list of all of the things mm-hmm. that the, you know, mostly the mothers were telling us are really important, and then we try to put it into a patient-reported outcome to actually make it quantifiable and try to you know, put it into our trials to validate. But if we didn't have that information from the families, we would have never known. We would have been looking um, somewhere else to look for a benefit.
0: In the worst cases, in the interest of getting a drug approved, investigators might, consciously or unconsciously, be choosing a cohort based on who will most likely help them reach their endpoint, rather than choosing an endpoint that actually represents the most people suffering from the disease. Here's Andrew McFadden, a patient advocate and executive director of the Isaac Foundation based in Canada.
11: But the problem is that when you're looking at randomized controlled trials, and the endpoints for such a heterogeneous population are so different that they have to find one that they can say is common. But what they neglect to understand is that if that's their only clinical endpoint, we're pigeonholed into the requirements in order to get that drug covered.
0: Narrowly defined endpoints can often also lead to problems in communicating with the other major players in this story, the payers. Because ultimately, a government or insurance company is going to have to be convinced that these new and often very expensive drugs are worth buying.
11: The big problem is that yes, the drug gets approved, but then payers are saying, well, what big deal? I I had a minister of health in Canada tell me, well, big deal, Billy can walk 220 meters longer in six minutes, what does that mean? for me. And really, what he's saying to me is, well, big deal. He can walk two hundred and twenty meters in in six minutes extra, but is that really worth seven hundred thousand dollars to me on an annual basis? And and you know, from, from the idea of value creeps into it, and we get into discussions with you know, value to you is different from value to value to Billy, who can now go to the bathroom by himself, do up his own you know uh, buttons, tie his own shoes, which leads to a whole host of different things. So. Uh, it's, it's, it's a voice that's there and it's a voice that's being heard, but we just can't use it appropriately based on the, the clinical trial guidelines that are currently exist.
0: This comes down to a fundamental question in all medical research. The difference between efficacy, how well something causes a particular effect in an experiment, and effectiveness, how well it actually solves a problem in the real world. Here's Dr. J. Russell Teagarden, a pharmacist who, among other things, serves on the New York University Working Group on Compassionate Use of Experimental Medications.
5: You know, Efficacy is, can it work? Effectiveness, does it work? Mm-hmm. And then there's, is it worth it as a value? And those are different types of research methods. There are different types of questions. And so, can it work, which is where the RCTs always come in. That's mm-hmm. one approach. Fine. That's, that's what the regulator's like. Does it work? That's what the payers want to know. They want to pay for some of the works. That's different methods. And we keep trying to jam those into the RCT. It's different methods. It's different researchers. You know, the biometricians love the RCT. They love love continuous ordinal data. But a lot of the stuff that the patient groups have or that their life is determined, Mm. is not. the data just doesn't take that shape.
0: And here's Dr. Woodcock.
1: I personally believe the clinical trial system is broken, not because it's produces anything bad, but it isn't fit for purpose. It doesn't meet the need. We aren't giving the evidence we have to have. Um, at the end of the development program for a new drug, after expenditure of really massive often amounts of dollars and a very long time frequently, many questions about drug use remain unanswered.
0: On the other hand, though, some would say, so what? Yes, we're not getting everything we want from randomized control trials, but what we're getting is really valuable. Here's Dr. Barry Gertz, a clinical pharmacologist who is now a partner at Claris, a venture capital firm that invests in new drug development.
12: Now, let's recognize that an RCT is just an experiment. It's a directed experiment. It may be more or less generalizable, but it is asking a very specific question. And it's probably the most judicious use of resources as a means to get to that answer. But that is only a single answer. You won't answer all the questions that uh, the interested parties, the patients want to know, that the payers want to know, that the government wants to know, but you'll answer some questions and you'll answer them with, I think, probably greater clarity than alternative approaches.
0: Maybe the problem here isn't randomized control trials per se, but rather bad randomized control trials. Ones that aren't living up to the potential of what they can actually accomplish. Here's Dr. Prasad followed by Dr. Califf.
2: Just because a study is a randomized study doesn't mean it's a good randomized study. Um, We talked about the unrepresentativeness of randomized control trials. But that's not a failure of the trial, that's a failure of our inclusion and exclusion criteria. Finally, we've heard a little bit about the reliance on surrogate endpoints, which may or may not correlate with what patients really care about living longer or living better. But again, I think blaming randomized control trials for these things is like blaming the Wright brothers for United Airlines. Uh, It's not their fault that we're misusing aircraft.
3: And um, these are the common myths that I keep hearing. When, When you say randomized clinical trial, you refer to some arcane thing where you must collect every possible data item. You have to have nurses fly around airplanes to check every data item at an amazing cost that's terrible for our environment. You have to exclude everyone who's relevant that you're most concerned about from the trial. And they have to be conducted like a laboratory experiment, divorce and clinical practice. I think all of these are myths they are not correct. And I just urge people to use the term traditional regulated clinical trial when you describe that kind of trial because it doesn't represent but a small minority of the clinical trials that are done. And I think there's a place for the traditional regulated clinical trial, but it's being used in cases where it shouldn't be used at all, and other uh, randomized clinical trial methods should be used.
0: And indeed, many people around the world are working to find new models of clinical trial that improve on traditional RCTs rather than discarding them altogether. Here's Dr. Troxel, followed by Ms. Reese-Colburn.
7: I said I'm not willing to give up randomization, and I'm certainly not. But we don't just have to sit in the background flipping coins. We can do, uh, you know, different kinds of adaptive randomization that will allow more rapid turnaround. We can do repeated randomizations that will allow uh, a trial to sort of mimic the way that clinical practice in in reality occurs, where you try something. If it seems like it's not working, often you try something else, and so we can we can. Formalize those kinds of decisions in a way that allows for uh, the generation of a lot of really high-quality knowledge and 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 uh, valid comparisons to be made, but that also allows for flexibility and uh, you know attention to both early and late effects and attention to uh, the kinds of outcomes that patients are really concerned about.
10: The iSpy trial, so it's a a, a different design, and it it happens to be in advanced breast cancer, so that's why I can relate to it. And so you start off with one drug, and if you respond well, you stay on it, and if you don't, you go to another drug. And so it's a Bayesian design. Well, from a patient standpoint, most of the time when you pick one trial, uh, you go through the treatment, you know, and if you don't do well on it, usually there's a washout period and frequently you're not even eligible for another trial because you're pretreated. treated So in this case, as somebody with advanced cancer, if I could look at all of these coming down the pike one after another, I would feel much more comfortable doing that. I know there are other issues about how to evaluate the data and all of that, but as a patient that's really attractive. I could get used, and they're continuing to add new um, drugs into the system. So that to me is a very attractive design as a patient.
0: This is an example of what's called a platform trial, a trial design that avoids some of the inefficiencies of the traditional RCT by testing multiple drugs for the same condition within the parameters of a single trial. Here's Dr. Woodcock.
1: These are continuous ongoing trials studying the disease that don't start and stop and have all that downtime and wasted effort of setting up a trial and then just stopping it and walking away from infrastructure. The goal is not to test a specific therapy. The goal is continuous improvement in disease outcomes. That should be the goal of our clinical trial system. The major question, the question that is rarely answered in our current clinical trial system is, what do you start with first? What do you use next in patients? What is the best treatment regimen progression and so forth? Which therapy works best in which subgroup of people? We just don't know answers to those because right now it is too expensive and takes too long. Uh, to answer those questions.
0: Here's Dr. Amrit Ray from Johnson & Johnson, followed by Dr. Matthew Rotelli from Eli Lilly.
12: You could imagine on one side five individual trials, all in the same disease area, all different competitor agents, all with different control groups, all being run with isolated, uh, purpose-built trial infrastructures. Now imagine a different world instead of having all that duplication, you had one structure with all five of the agents in the same trial, not five placebo or control groups, but one placebo group or one control group. Imagine if they, they all used a common set of um, you know, trial agreements, of uh, research partners and so forth, because a lot of the burden that goes into these duplicate trials would be removed. Plus you get new possibilities.
8: And I can envision one day where we even have trials that kind of never end. You're going to always have an evolving standard of care and just as new therapies come out they just add arms into that study and as other things become obsolete or demonstrate that they're not as good, they they get dropped out.
0: And it's nice to hear both of those comments coming from scientists inside pharmaceutical companies. Because one of the biggest obstacles to these kinds of trials is the natural reluctance of competing companies to work together when it comes to research and development. Here's Steve Usden, the editor of Biocentury Magazine.
6: So that implies a, um, I mean, I think two things. One is a loss of a certain loss of control for the companies, right? They have to have Absolutely. confidence um, that there's some independent entity that's going to be conducting the trial for their um, for their co- their molecule, and the, and the other is that then the companies are not competing on the basis of who can um, create um, the better clinical trial, but really on who creates the the better drug.
0: Of course, for the various companies to accept a neutral arbiter of these trials, that arbiter would have to exist, which as of now, it doesn't. Here's Dr. Woodcock.
1: Nobody's charged to do it. That's the real problem. And that's why I have been calling on the patients to rise up and demand of all these parties that this type of thing be done on their behalf.
0: Another thing that doesn't exist, but would make this whole enterprise exponentially more efficient, is a national clinical trial infrastructure that would allow patients to easily find trials they might qualify for. Because the truth is that even if you're willing to participate in a study, the chances that you and that study are aware of each other are at the moment very low. Here's Dr. Anne Kropp, a pharmacist and chief scientific officer of the company Early Access Care, followed by Dr. Perlmutter and Dr. Luciana Borio, an assistant commissioner of the FDA.
10: Patients will go to Google first and then they'll find a clinical trial and then they'll go to clinicaltrials.gov, which we know where they're going to end up. You know, it's a really um, very difficult space. But then, if they bring a clinical trial to their physician, it, the chances are that that physician
9: is not well versed in clinical trials as well. Why don't patients um, participate in clinical trials? Reason number one they never asked, they don't know about them. Um, most doctors in clinical practice don't even offer clinical trials.
1: And I think, you know, my, my dream is, and I have a dream, is that every patient, um, every person that encounters a healthcare system or not has an opportunity to enroll in a clinical study, to be able to add to the body of knowledge that we have. And I think that would be really <coughs> big, you know, for biomedical transfer- innovation and transformation. Today, we do not get learn from most encounters.
0: And maybe, if we're able to collect and share data in these kinds of ways, we could utilize that data in such a way that we wouldn't need so many new trials. Here's Dr. Califf, followed by Dr. Gertz.
3: The systems that I described could be observing continuously. In fact, they are. But they're being observed by health systems for business purposes right now um, to make sure the payments go in so that everyone can stay alive financially. That same data, as it gets better and better, is going to be a way to observe medical products of all types, but also health service delivery systems. If we can get over our cultural habits and figure out how to share data in a way that's respectful of people, I think you'll see progress for rare diseases and common diseases at a pace uh, that's never been seen before. As we
12: become more proficient uh, with data sharing, that you're hearing more and more about, when as patient level data is becoming available, that perhaps there are questions that could be addressed using patient level data from randomized clinical trials so that we don't have to try to open it up and spend all that money and all that time. We probably can answer the question. It's probably right there staring at us, but the data has never been available to be consolidated. So in the end,
0: As with most big questions, maybe there's not going to be one answer, but rather smarter, more thoughtful use of all the available types of data collection, based on what best fits the situation. And this will need to start, maybe, with an open-minded appraisal of what randomized control trials can actually do if they're done right. Here's Dr. John L.P. Thompson, professor of biostatistics and neurology at Columbia University Medical Center.
6: We did one of these in ALS, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial for CoQ10 and nutritional supplement. We were told in no uncertain terms that this was impossible, the patients would never agree to it, and no trial had ever been run without 20% loss to follow up, which is fatal. And I said, I'm going to talk to the patients, I'm going to get them on board, and our target is zero loss to follow-up. And they said, you're mad. (laughs) And I talked with the patients, and we ran the trial. There was 0% loss to follow-up in in the last phase. And when the trial ended, there were patients who were very disappointed that they could not be enrolled in this placebo-controlled trial. This is what I call the melt-away effect, whereby when you participate with, experience, with patients, explain to them why you're doing the trial and they feel they own it, the whole situation can change. So we have this continuum then from the traditional randomized con- placebo-controlled trial at one end to at the other end the other techniques that diverge the most from that. It's not a matter of trying to pick point x somewhere on that continuum which is the best place to be no it's a matter of understanding the strengths the limitations and the dangers of every technique all along the way so that for any given question and any given program we can evaluate the options and make the best choice
0: and here's dr joanne Waldstriker, chief medical officer of johnson and johnson
7: I think we all agree that we want to see new and better treatment options delivered and developed for patients as quickly as possible. But we also know that we absolutely cannot compromise the critical knowledge on safety and efficacy that's needed from clinical trials. And that's the delicate balance that we have to tread each and every time we think through a development plan for a product.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with scientific and administrative oversight by Dr. Kari Fisher and Dr. Melanie Brickman Borchard. All the excerpts used in this episode were drawn from the event, The Need to Accelerate Therapeutic Development – Must Randomized Control Trials Give Way, held at the Academy on June 21st and 22nd, 2017. It was jointly presented by the Academy and the NYU School of Medicine with support from Johnson & Johnson. Thanks to all the experts we quoted in this episode, Dr. Art Kaplan and Dr. Andrea Troxel of the NYU School of Medicine, Dr. Susan Letterer of the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Robert Califf of Duke University and Verily, Dr. Christopher Robertson of the University of Arizona, Dr. Vinay Prasad of Oregon Health and Science University, Dr. Ellis Unger, Dr. Luciana Lopez-Borio, and Dr. Janet Woodcock of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Holly Fernandez-Lynch of the University of Pennsylvania, Clifton Leaf of Fortune Magazine, Rebecca Susan Dresser of Washington University, Dr. Jane Perlmutter of the Gemini Group, Dr. Edward K., Andrew McFadden of the Isaac Foundation, Dr. J. Russell Teagarden, Dr. Amrit Ray and Dr. Joanne Waldstriker of Johnson & Johnson, Dr. Matthew Rotelli of Eli Lilly, Steve Usdin of BioCentury Magazine, Dr. Ann Kropp of Early Access Care, and Dr. John L.P. Thompson of Columbia University. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.